0: Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson.
1: 167 on Footsteps of the Messiah, I believe. And As we're looking at eschatology and the study of end times, and we've been talking about this... um, This is what we have to look forward to, is our future right here we're going to study. This is page 167. We're going to study the Lamb and the Seven Seals Scroll. This is Revelation 5, 1 through 14. And it says this, um, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back, closed sealed with seven seals. So it actually should be translated scroll. It's a scroll, not necessarily a book, but a scroll. So it's, it has six seals on it, and if you can picture that in your mind. And let's continue on. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a great voice who is worthy to open the book, or the scroll, and to loose the seals thereof. And no one in heaven, or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the book, or to look thereon. And I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open the book, and to look thereon. And so the great search has been put out for is there a human being that has the ability to open the scroll. I'll explain what the scroll is in just a moment. But the idea is you look for the search on heaven, earth, under the earth that means in Hades. There's no one no human being that they can see that has the ability to open the book. And that is because uh, all have sinned. All are condemned if they do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. This proclamation, as I took you through David and Goliath, is in the negative form a satanic taunt of, send me the man that you have promised. Where is the man? Remember Goliath was taunting, send me a man? Well, that's been the call of Satan Ever since Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman will destroy you. And he has been called, Satan's been trying to call out, which man is it, which man is it, which man is it. And obviously it's, it's come to Jesus Christ. He's the man. This call is in the, obviously in the positive of which man has the ability to cause God to give him the scroll, which is basically the title deed to the earth, which is the dominion, of the earth, which was taken away from Adam as he lost it, and also is the scroll that contains the judgment of how to get rid of sin from the planet, from planet earth, and the cosmos. And no man has been able to be found, obviously, and we know the answer to this, but that's what this is starting to set up. In verses five through seven, and then one of the elders says to me, the elders is, uh, when you see that's 24 elders, we talk about that being the church. So the church comes over to explain to John in this vision, we've not behold the lion. Now that's interesting. The lion represents the second coming aspect of Messiah, right? That is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Remember we thought we were looking at David on Sunday morning, and David is where Messiah will come through, he's the root of David, hath overcome to open the book and the seven seals thereof. And I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, the church, a lamb standing. Now that's interesting. He's taught, The Messiah has talked about being the the lion, and now we have a lamb. The lamb is the first coming. The lion is the second coming aspect of Messiah. Okay. This one, that's the root of David. The, from the Judah has the ability to, to take the scroll from God and to exercise its judgment and to exercise the dominion that Adam lost is basically what's going on. Adam lost his dominion when he sinned. So it, what is needed is a second Adam. And basically in the, in the next scripture, it's going to explain why he has the ability to do this. And he says a lamb standing, so the lamb obviously refers to his first coming, which is sacrificial, as though it had been slain. Do you see that that phrase, as though it had been slain? That is a term, a a, a kind of a Hebrew idiom, to refer to a resurrected individual. As though it it had been slain refers to that this one that stands there has been dead and is resurrected. Hence, this is why he has the ability to exercise this judgment. There's something about him. Okay, so he's he had, you had to be resurrected, having seven horns. Seven horns ref, horns refer to power. Seven means perfect power, a completion of power. He is has the prerogative of a king, but he's more than a king. He is he has the power of God behind him. So, in in essence, he is God. Okay, this one that's from the line of the tribe of Judah. This one that has been sacrificed. This one that has been resurrected. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit empowered Messiah, he is sent by Messiah to the earth. It says sent forth into all the earth. So that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent by Messiah. And this is a promise in John 16. So that being the case, this, this one, this line of the tribe of Judah, is a man because he died and was resurrected, but because he has the sevenfold power, he is also God. So it's telling you all the aspects of who is the one that can bring judgment and clear the earth of sin. Well it's obviously Jesus Christ, but it's emphasizing his role as deity, his role as man, and his role as conqueror in the second coming. And it says, and he came and it takes it out of his uh, and he take it takes it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he basically takes the scroll from the Father. The reference points to this is Daniel seven and Zechariah five, one through four. Daniel 7 was quoted by our Lord the night he was arrested, if you recall this, with the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. And they they asked him, in oath, are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And Messiah, under oath, said, yes, I am, basically. And then he quotes from Daniel chapter 7, and, I, and this is what he quotes, and he, he, and he said, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And this is a quote from Daniel 7.13, I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That's the glory clouds. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom... The one which shall not be destroyed. So, this passage here is relating to Daniel 7, that this is the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. Now, if you turn to Zechariah chapter 5, it'll explain a little bit more about what's on the scroll. Real briefly in Zechariah chapter 5, it says this, and this is Zechariah's vision of the flying scroll. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, "What do you see?" So I answered, "I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits." Hmm. Then he said to me, "This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to the side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. Now, in verse 4, it says, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house, and consume it, and its timber and stones. So, what's going on here? The scroll represents the punishment of disobeying the commands of God for the entire earth. You notice that the scroll here has two sides. The Ten Commandments have two sides, the front and the back. And the way it would be written is the, the laws of God, the vertical ones, and then the horizontal ones. And it, it notices that it, the curse is on the front and back of the scroll. Interesting that the scroll goes out as a curse over all the land, and it searches out all those kinds of sinners, and there will be nowhere to hide from it. It will, it, they will try to hide in the inner homes and different things, but the curse will pursue them and hunt them down and get go after them. This is the curse that Jesus is about to execute through the tribulation. That's what the scroll represents. It is not only man, uh, him gaining dominion, it is his job as the second Adam to rid the planet of sin. Yeah, no, when we're talking about the law, we're not talking about the the Jewish law. We're talking about the eternal laws of God, the eternal laws of God. The Jewish law, the Mosaic law, encapsulated some of those, well, in fact, all the eternal laws, but it added more for their theocracy. But the eternal laws of God always exist. It's always wrong to murder, always wrong to steal, always wrong to lie. No matter what dispensation you're in, the eternal laws apply and if you break those laws, you're guilty. So like Paul would say this in Romans chapter 2, and let me read this for you, to show that everybody's guilty of breaking the eternal laws of God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing them or excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So what he was saying here is that there is an eternal law of God that's written on the hearts of all human beings. And that law will judge them. So they're not going to be judged by the Mosaic Law, they're going to be judged by the eternal laws of God, which are in every dispensation. Always wrong to murder, always wrong to have idolatry, it's always wrong to worship false gods, always wrong to blaspheme, it's always wrong for coveting, always wrong for infidelity, stuff like that. But this curse that goes out is the curse of God for breaking the laws, his laws. And so Jesus will execute that for God the Father. That's who the executioner is, is Jesus. So you have your Daniel 7, and then Zechariah explaining that a little bit more. Okay, so let's move down to um, verses 8 through 14 on the bottom of page 168. And it says this, And we had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders, that's the church, fell down before the Lamb, having each a harp, Talking about, that's, that's a, a, um, we'll use for that for worship. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So pra- our prayers are like incense to God. And the, the cumulative effect of the church's prayers are there symbolically symbolized in the bowls of incense. Okay, so explain that a little bit. Well, this whole time that we've been talking about current events, you've been praying, it has been storing up in heaven those prayers, and God has heard those prayers, and remember we talked even last week about we pray for the vengeance of God, that that's an appropriate prayer, like the persistent widow, she prayed that the judge would avenge her. These prayers that are right there with the 24 elders, which is the church, is the entire encapsulation of All the church's prayers, ever since its inception to its end, of God bring justice to this world. And it's symbolically symbolized by the incense sitting there. Because what is getting ready to happen is the final answer to those prayers. And God is saying, it is time. So those are a storehouse, basically, of all the church's prayers. Bring justice to this. So then he goes on and he explains it, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, and you could this this is why you can tell this is the church. Worthy are you to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain, and did purchase unto God with your blood men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and made them to be unto our God a kingdom and priests, or kings and priests, and they shall reign upon the earth. That's how you know in the redemption song of the 24 elders that that's the church. How would you tell? Because what is it, what is it, the Israelites? Are they from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation? No, they're Jewish. So that's how you can know the 24 elders. Another clue that the 24 elders are the church because the church is made up of Every man from tribe to tribe. And look at the occurrence. He died and then purchased men from every tribe. Right? So it it shows you that these are the church. And look at the promise. They will reign upon the earth. That's your final uh, destiny for the millennial kingdom. You will help co-reign with Christ on planet earth. And I saw and I heard a voice of many angels around about the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's the Greek way of saying innumerable. They don't have anything past 10,000 in Greek. And thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, worthy is the lamb that has been slain. Notice the sevenfold aspects of Messiah. To receive power and riches, wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. Those are the sevenfold aspects of Messiah. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all the things that are in them, heard I saying, Unto him that sits on the throne, and unto the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion, forever and ever. Notice the word dominion. That is what Adam lost. Now, the second Adam, Messiah, is getting it back for us. Why? Because he was slain, he died for sins, because he was perfect, and he resurrected forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, you contrast that with the rest of the book of Revelation, and what you will see from this point on is judgment. Comfort and peace in heaven, you're with Messiah, Versus now, as Messiah gets ready to break the seals, judgment will happen on earth. So you, you want to see that contrasted with that. So any questions so far? i got ten more minutes and then I'm going to do a break, but I want to start the introduction to the Great Tribulation. So if you go to the next page, page 173, now we can get into what's called the Tribulation period. The names of it are important. You'll see this all throughout Scripture. The day of Yahweh or Jehovah or the day of the Lord is a common term being applied to the tribulation period. If you go to page 174, Frutenbaum has done a great job in showing you all of the names for this seven-year period. The famous one, Jacob's Trouble, right? The 70th week of Daniel, that's another phrase. Jehovah's Strange Work, Uh, Jehovah's Strange Act, Day of Israel's Calamity, Tribulation, that's a common term. Indignation, Overflowing Scourge, Day of Vengeance, Year of Recompense, Time of Trouble, Day of Wrath, Day of Distress, wait, uh, Wasteness, Desolation, Darkness, Gloominess, Clouds, Thick Darkness, Trumpet, Alarm. Then you have New Testament names. Day of the Lord, Wrath of God, Hour of Trial, Great Day of Wrath of the Lamb, Wrath to Come, Wrath, Great Tribulation, Tribulation, Hour of Judgment. Now, with all those names in place, you do you think it's going to be a problem? It's a bad time. There's nothing in Scripture that has this amount of names attached to this era. And what the Scripture, I think, you see trying to do is warn everybody that if you get left behind, this is it's, it's, it's judgment or hell come to earth, and you better wake up. And, 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 and this is what scared me into getting saved. This is, this is what I saw listening uh, through the book of Revelation, that scared me to death. And it should scare anybody to death as they look at that. It's almost incomprehensible what the Bible's trying to explain about this period of time. Okay, what are the purposes then? If you page page 175, we'll talk about them. The purposes, first of all, is to make an end of wickedness and wicked ones. It's to get rid of every wicked person off this planet. There will never be this kind of evil on the planet ever again after this time period. So Isaiah thirteen nine mentions this. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make a, the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners thereof out of it. The purpose of the tribulation is to get rid of sinners on the planet. Isaiah 24:19 through 20, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is rent asunder. The earth is shaken violently. The earth shall stagger like a drunken man and shall sway to and fro like a hammock. And the transgressions, our transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. So I'm going to destroy it and sin will never crop up on the planet again. Now, we know a few things happen in the millennium, but not like it is right now, not what you're seeing right now. That's the first reason. The second reason, then, is to bring about a worldwide revival. So here's where God's grace and mercy come in. If you read in Revelation 7, 1 through 4, it says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or upon any tree. And I saw another angel ascend from the sun rising, having the seal of the living God. So the idea of the angels being on the four corners of the earth is that Worldwide evangelism will happen on the entire planet. Okay? And I saw another angel ascend from the sun rising and having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a great voice to four angels to whom which it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of them that were sealed, a hundred and forty-four thousand sealed out of every tribe of the children of Israel. Now, it gets into the 144,000, and just based based on what you read there, who are the 144,000? It's Jews. If you read it for face value, you can't get anything past it, and it's Jews. It is not Jehovah's Witnesses and Michael Jackson. Um, And the reason I say Michael Jackson, he's a Jehovah's Witness, or he was. It's not anything else you can read into that. It is simply the 12 tribes of Israel. And he seals out uh, 144,000 men, Jewish men, virgin. And interesting, we'll see in these other passages that um, they're without spot or blemish. And that's an interesting phrase. Being without spot or blemish is not only referring to their morality, that they live clean. It doesn't mean they're sinless it simply means that they're morally pure but they're also theologically pure without spot and blemish now that's interesting because theologically pure means that all of their doctrines are straight they 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 have every doctrine figured out there's no debate at this point in time when they figure it out it's they're right they're right about everything you know how there's debate on whether you know there's you know, modes of baptism, or there's debate about tongues, or there's debate about soteriology, or there's debate about end times. When they get saved, there is no debate. They got it all down right. So that, what, that's what the term means without spot or blemish. That's why when we talk about this great apostasy, that you're seeing Christians have spots and blemishes on their theology. Our goal is not to have spots and blemishes, is to have our theology as pure as it could be. But as you're seeing, many Christians, because of their lack of discipleship, have spots and blemishes. They have gaps in their game. These guys don't have any gaps. They got it all down. Okay. Another thing about them, interesting thing that Fruchtenbaum will make, and I, I agree with him on this. If things go down right away, and you have you know the pre-tribulational events and all this stuff occurring, and then the church is raptured out of here. Who is going to pick up the work? Because the average pastor, the average missionary, has got to spend, he's got to go to undergraduate, he's got to go to seminary, which is three years, and then if you're going on the foreign mission field, you've got to spend two more years learning the foreign language. Seven, so, you know, you got seven, nine years under your belt before a full-blown missionary goes on the field. And in seven years, for a pastor he just to have an MDiv to go on on the field. There's not enough time for that. So how is God going to get the gospel message out? And it's not just the gospel. It's the the correct theology out in that quick of time. You have to go to the Jews. And why do I say that? Why does Frutenbaum say it? Why does God go to the Jews? Not only is God starting the program with Israel again, there's no doubt about that. But why use 144 virgin men, Jewish men, in this arena to evangelize the entire planet? Well, there's interesting things to know about the Jews. Most of them have a very good handle of the Old Testament. Okay? I'm not saying the liberal Jews have a good testament. I mean, the, the Hollywood Jews, they don't know anything. Okay? <laughs> you know that. Steven, Steven Spielberg and all those guys, yes, they're Jewish, but they ain't got a clue what's going on, right? Amen. But I'm talking about if you go to some of the Jews that are in Jerusalem, there might be Hasidic, there might be you know, Orthodox, they have a very good working knowledge of the Old Testament. They know Hebrew, which is important. In that case, if they get saved... They're being like the Apostle Paul, or like many of the disciples who already had the Old Testament background, but now it's been clarified by the Holy Spirit. So the rest of the New Testament will make perfect sense to them. And that's why I always try to teach the Old Testament many times, because to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament first. The progression of Revelation goes from the Old to the New. You don't start in the New and then go back. You start from the Old and go forward. That's how the Jews are equipped. They're already set in place to know the Old Testament. That being the case, them coming to faith in Messiah, they can learn the New Testament, and they can be on the ground within months. Okay? Second thing, most people don't realize most Jewish people are multilingual. Just because of where they live all over the planet. Yes, we know half of them are in Jerusalem, but the other ones are scattered throughout the planet. Most Jews know several languages. Fruitenbaum will make the point that his family knew five. So tell me, if I have to send a missionary today, a Gentile, and he's got to learn Spanish or he's got to learn Japanese or he's got to learn Chinese, he's going to spend two years learning that language. You don't have to mess with that because the Jew, wherever he's at, knows the language. He already knows Hebrew and he knows the language. That's like the Apostle Paul. Paul knew several languages, multilingual. He knew Hebrew, he knew Koine Greek, he knew Aramaic, and he knew Latin. He could go anywhere and converse with anybody. That made him so much more effective, and so much so like the 144,000, their communicative abilities are unmatched. Most people are not multilingual. I'm not talking about two languages, three, four, five different languages. Most Jews. Um, that being the case, the other thing about we see they're scattered through the world. And yes, we know some of them are still in Israel, some of them are here in America, but they're still scattered throughout most of the parts of the world, and that they're already on the field. That's the thing, they don't, but God knows, and that's what's relevant: that God knows what tribes they're from. He knows where to get the 12,000 from here and 12,000 from there. They may not know. The only ones that know their ancestry are the Levites because of DNA testing. And they seem to have a common ancestor, which we know is Aaron. So what's important is that God knows who they are. So the 144,000, they may not know every person of the 144,000, but they will know that they're part of this. And, and whether they know what tribe they're from, that's maybe irrelevant. That's up to God to know. But you start seeing why it would be important to have that kind of evangelist, because now you're talking about 144,000 Apostle Pauls on the ground instantaneously. Within months, they're ready to be on the field. That's amazing. It's amazing how God has already set this in motion and got them prepared. I think there's many, many Jews that you don't know about that are really studying the Scriptures And they're close. They're like Nicodemus. And they're getting there. We just don't know them. But when the rapture happens and it all goes down, Gog and Magog, it's, it's gonna cause an evangelism in Jerusalem and in Israel, as it says in Ezekiel, and many Jews will come to faith in Messiah because of those pre-tribulational events, which sets up the 144,000. So, any questions on there? We'll, we'll continue on the 144,000 next time. Yeah, and that's why he says, "I until I put the seal on them. And that's important because they will not be touched by the Antichrist, nor will they be touched by any plagues or demonic. They are completely preserved through the whole seven years. And no, no one will be able to touch. There will be martyrdom, the 144,000 will not be touched, because what is their job? To evangelize. And so God is going to specially protect them to make sure the mouthpiece stays fresh all through the tribulation, is not heard. So that's not only an act of grace on to, to them, it's an act of grace on the entire world because they will keep hearing the gospel until the very end. Amazing. So anyway, we'll continue that next time. Let's take a break and we'll come back to uh, Life
0: of Messiah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our Redemption dolls near. God bless.